On this week's episode of Empower, I'm joined by one of the managing partners of Next Wave Strategic Consulting Group, Ms. Shakira Dennis, where we discuss COVID-19, the CARES Act, how it's impacted the local community, and what we can expect in the coming weeks. Empower is a podcast presented by the Houston Area Urban League that serves to inform young professionals about the Urban League, its programs, and the various civic and social topics pertinent to the community they serve. Good morning again, everyone. My name is Ray Shackleford. I am your host slash moderator today. I'm the president of the National Urban League Young Professionals, which is a auxiliary of the National Urban League. It's 21 to 40. We have about 6,000 plus members across the country supporting urban leagues in their cities through advocacy, fundraising, leadership development, uh, and just making sure that the community overall is supported as a whole. Uh, our membership is very diverse in terms of the different fields that people operate in. Some of them are business owners uh, like our guests today, and some of them work in the corporate space. Uh, but without further ado, I want to uh, introduce Ms. Shakira Dennis, who is one of the managing partners and founders of Next Wave Consulting. Uh, she is a longtime friend of mine, longtime friend of the Urban League. She's been very involved in the community uh, for the entire time I've known her, even going back to her days before I know her as a SGA uh, president for Texas Southern University. Wow. Shout out to the HBCUs. Uh, but she's been doing some great work in the political space and now she's branched out on her own so if you would tell us a little bit about yourself we see your, your business partner has joined us today oh, hi erica <laughs> um thank you again ray um i really appreciate the opportunity um to engage in dialogue with Houston area urban league um we know that you all have been on the front lines um, of some of the most pressing issues that have impacted um underserved communities of color um i'm most um, humbled to be here to have a meaningful dialogue about COVID relief efforts and to speak from the vantage point of community stakeholders and what we can do as a collective um, to continue to support flattening the curve and ensuring that those who are most impacted are connected to the resources um, that they need. Absolutely. And so let's jump right into the conversation. When you look at everything that's happened with the coronavirus, COVID-19, we've seen a lot of reports, especially in the last probably two weeks, uh, two to three weeks, where it's disproportionately impacting the African-American community, uh, the Black community. What do you think we can attribute to this? Um, and how has this shaped the response thus far to the virus? I think that, I mean, we've read the headlines, um, we've looked at the data, we understand that African-Americans are most at risk giving um, pre-existing underlying health conditions such as diabetes, hypertension, and things of that nature. But there's also a broader conversation about disparities and inequalities as it pertains to access um, to healthcare. And so we understand what the challenges are and, it's, and I'm grateful that we actually have data, which I believe should be shaping the response from the local state and federal level as to how we go about addressing things such as access um, to testing, centralized testing centers in communities of color, and quite frankly, other extenuating circumstances that present barriers to individuals to actually get tested. And so I'm hoping to see and hear more from some of our local officials. And I think that they've started those conversations and movements toward um, working as a collective to figure out 
how do we address this in a data-driven, um, intentional, solution-oriented manner? No, absolutely. And, you know, it's been interesting to me how this virus has revealed a lot of the systemic issues that uh, have plagued our community for a while. Uh, and it just made it, you know, come to the forefront. And I was just having a conversation uh, with our CEO, Justin Robinson III, last week. Mm -hmm. And the saying that he keeps using, and I've heard, you know, other more seasoned saints use it as well, <laughs> is that when white America catches a cold, black America catches the flu. Um, and so I think it is very apropos when you look at what we're going through right now. And testing is critical. We have seen how it's ramped up here locally, as you mentioned. Uh, initially, it was just those that were experiencing symptoms and fell within a specific demographic. Uh, and now testing has been opened up to the general public as a whole. Um, and I think to your point, moving forward, it's gonna be especially very critical um, when you're talking about even the, the recent orders to reopen uh, society, reopen businesses. So you look at uh, Governor Kemp, what he's doing in Georgia, uh, we see Governor Abbott, what he's doing here in Texas. What are your thoughts on that? I have my thoughts on it. Uh, <laughs> and how do you, how do you see this? Uh, I mean, playing out. It's some would say it's, it's it's premature. There's been a lot of different responses. You have those that are, um, you know, just to, just to positioning it as, you know, life versus the economy or money. Um, and it, it's not an easy decision to make to be fair, but um, what are your thoughts on that? I think, I mean, especially being here in Texas and, and hearing Governor Abbott's plans to work us back into normal comings and goings in phases, right? And we've witnessed Governor Kemp in Georgia, um, even Governor DeSantis in Florida, right? Having conversations about how do we get back to work? I think my, my challenge, and I'm pretty sure many other um, individuals are concerned about the prematurity of these decisions, right? Absent any medical expertise or data that supports that we've actually flattened the curve, the sense of urgency to really get individuals back into the workforce, to get businesses back up and going is, again, premature and, and dangerous and ultimately could cost people their lives. And there should never be a conversation, especially I'm not from elected <laughs> officials that come from a vantage point that's not supported by medical expertise or data, right? It's, it's an extremely dangerous game. And as you've seen, many of the mayors have been, and in some of the major counties and municipalities have been very vocal, right? And have been very intentional in, in their regard to say, hey, look, we hear what the governor's saying. And that's been a challenge, right? You hear what the governor's saying, you hear what our federal officials are saying, and then local officials who everyone is just trying to do what's best for their respective constituencies, you know, but absent of, again, any medical expertise or data that supports that we should be opening our businesses and we should be getting folks reintegrated back into society and back to our normal comings and goings. It is it's premature, it's tough, it, and it's dangerous. And, and quite frankly, I mean, we don't want another person to lose their life to the coronavirus and and I'm appreciative of our local um, government officials, down from our county judge and to our mayor, who, who are with the information that they have, are making the most informed decisions that they can at this juncture, especially given that we're dealing with a virus that we've never dealt with before, right? So this is our, 
our first go around with it, but hopefully from this outbreak comes more meaningful solution oriented positions and practices moving forward should there be another outbreak in the future. No, absolutely. And it's some of the, the responses. I even saw a tweet yesterday from former um, state Senate candidate and presidential candidate uh, Beto O'Rourke. And he was talking about, you know, how the reopening is going to disproportionately impact uh, communities of color and those that have those low wage jobs just because they don't necessarily have the ability to continue to social distance even as we look to reintegrate and reopen so to speak and so i think it's definitely something that bears watching uh and to your point it's definitely something that has never happened before um so there's a lot of uncertainty all the way up to uh executives at every level uh that's something i've seen as a trustee for the national urban league that people just don't know and they're just trying to navigate it the best they can with the information that they have um and i think the the data-driven way to date has been the best course of action um since it's something we've never seen before Absolutely. now one of the things that um just happened literally yesterday was an order as it relates to mask and those requirements specific to harris county it's again with all of these things i remember even like initially when they closed the restaurants and the bars and the clubs people were panicking and so you know each time one of these things happens there is a uh, a response from the general public just because it's something we're not accustomed to especially as americans um you know the level of freedoms that we have and so but do you think this would be effective as it relates to you know flattening the curve and how do you see it playing out um i even got an email earlier today where i saw alan rosen is doing a drive um in certain centers where he's giving out gloves and masks to make sure that people have the equipment that they need um i think that that judge hidalgo is is doing everything within her power um to flatten the curve i think this is it's just another prescription i'm sure that she's um taking the expertise and feedback from individuals within her um, respective administration to ensure that we're navigating this um, in the most effective manner possible as it pertains to the mask. And as we mentioned before, African-Americans are disproportionately impacted and we have to think about underserved communities and we have to think about access to masks and what that actually looks like. So I'm always you know, excited to hear about elected officials who understand right, their constituencies and understand that there may be challenges to getting a mask, right? And I know that they're at home, like do-it-yourself kind of deals, but ultimately, you know, folks want to know that the masks that they have will protect them, right? 99.999%. And so I think that in that regard, um, I trust that anything that's put forth moving forward is to assist us in flattening the curve. And there does need to be real conversations around how do we make sure that every citizen has access to things to ensure that they are um, protected. Mask, other protective gear, things of that nature, access to testing centers. I mean, all of that should be easy and accessible. And I'm grateful to see, like I said, Constable Rosen, I know the city of Houston and other government agencies and elected officials stepping up to the plate and saying, we know this is a barrier. We know this is a challenge. Meet us here, meet us there. 
I've been watching the food distribution, um, the food distribution centers, and how the community has really come together, right? Elected officials and average everyday citizens to quite frankly, just help, right? Putting themselves at risk as well in the process of just trying to help another fellow Houstonian. Yes, and you know, I've seen a few elected officials I've been concerned about, uh, our Congresswoman, <laughs> Sheila Jackson Lee, because she's been everywhere on the front lines, like you said, at the testing sites. Um, and I was like, she needs to be in the house, but hey, you know, the Congresswoman is who she okay. is, and she's going to be out there with the people. Uh, and so <laughs> we do appreciate that. Uh, but you, you read my mind in terms of the direction I want to go next, in terms of the food distribution uh, centers, how they've been impacted, and some of the challenges that we've been facing here in the Houston community, because I think that's something that probably doesn't get talked about as much um, with all the different things that we're experiencing. And so, um, could you shed more light on that for the people that are tuning in today? Yeah, I know. I think we had a, I think we had a pretty in-depth conversation about food insecurity and communities of color and access, right, to quality food in communities of color, but more importantly, the food bank pretty much being at its capacity and having to rely upon external resources. Um, I was reading an article the other day where Commissioner Ellis committed $800,000 to the food bank. I think that that's just an innate just demonstration of leadership, right? There's no reason in the third largest county in the country that there are people concerned about whether or not they're going to be able to feed their family in the midst of a global crises. So I'm excited to see happy to see the work that the food bank you know has been doing as of late across the county and the accessibility of the food distribution centers and and it's alarming quite frankly to see the challenges not just that the food bank is experiencing but our farmers right and the disconnect between the mass production of food and getting it to the people who are quite frankly hungry right and seeing lines wrapped around the corner in places like san antonio my mother um resides in san antonio recently bought a house out there and i had a conversation with her about the challenges in san antonio and just the food bank lines being wrapped around the corner and the food shortages that exist right now and that are to come right and so and, and if there are people out there who are in need of those resources so you said food bank i i, I will reiterate again it's doing a dynamic job. I think that in the midst of trying to navigate a global crisis, it's impossible to try to calculate just the widespread impact that it would have um, on families and underserved communities specifically. I think you and I already talked a little bit about, you know, those parents whose households, like they only expect to feed their kid for dinner, right? Because their kids at school all day for breakfast and for lunch and snacks. And so when they get home, the one meal that they would be responsible for preparing is, is dinner. And so now they went from having to budget to prepare for maybe just one meal a day plus snacks here and there on the weekend, et cetera, but to now three meals a day plus snacks, plus homeschooling, plus just other layers that I don't think, you know, as, as we said before, unintended consequences like of this thing that people don't really think all the way through. And so I'll reiterate again, I am excited and happy to see that we have elected officials on local level that's rising to the occasion to really address these issues in a really solution-oriented manner. Yes, and to your point, I think, you know, the young people and their parents, uh, when you talk about the education system and how they do depend on those meals, on that food, um, and budget accordingly, their lives have been significantly disrupted. Um, 
And I was just having a conversation the other day, even about, you know, from an educational perspective with everything going virtual, but everyone doesn't necessarily have access to uh, the internet. They may not have data plans that can support it. Um, and so we're noticing more and more challenges or challenges that were already there, again, just being, you know, bubbling to the top, uh, so to speak. And one of the things that I know has been definitely in the news this past week um, is the small business assistance. Um, a lot of small businesses have been impacted. Uh, we've seen, I think it was Shake Shack gave back a $10 million loan um, <laughs> that they received. And obviously, you know, there are a lot of people within the public who felt like they probably shouldn't have, you know, taken the loan in the first place. They did meet the criteria. Um, and we've seen a lot of larger investment firms, law firms that have taken advantage of it because, again, they did meet the criteria. And so just yesterday, they, they replenished it um, with, a, with a new stimulus bill. But what are some of the, uh, the resources we can direct those small business owners? Or what do you think will be coming down the pipeline as we see these different packages getting voted on and approved? Um, like as you as you mentioned before, I mean, as it pertains to the Small Business Administration, the pay the payroll protection program (PPP) as everyone's been um, referring to it. It honestly was what. So what we what we believe was that it was designed to support the small business community in a meaningful way, and that meant that small businesses had the opportunity to access federal resources, right, to support them, to keep their doors open, right, to assist. Um, with their employees and things of that nature. And but what we witnessed with that program, I think that there was roughly about maybe $350 billion allocated for small businesses that were quite frankly absorbed by not so small businesses. <laughs> and it was it was tough. And not to mention, I mean, there's a broader conversation about, you know, access to government resources in underserved communities and some of the barriers and challenges that exist there. I think one of the primary um, parties that the federal government was responsible for working in concert with was the banks. I think we, Secretary Mnuchin, I think from day maybe three, <laughs> realized that there were some challenges, right, and barriers to communication because day one of the program, no one was really able to access the application. The banks were not working in concert with the federal government as expected. And quite frankly, small business owners across the nation paid the price for it. Now, Congress is an active conversation about replenishing it up to maybe 420 plus billion dollars. But I also think that there needs to be very meaningful conversations about protections put in place to ensure that those dollars make it to those small businesses who need it most as it pertains to the African-American community and business community. In, in that regard, I mean, we have to think about some of the smaller institutions and banks and also some of the small businesses that are really the lifeline of some of our communities, right? That may not open their doors again with or without, you know, the support. And so there's a, a broader conversation about what happens to our communities once we're absent of, you know, small businesses that have assisted our communities in thriving for the last decade or so. And what are we doing to address those things? I think that federal government resources are great, but we also do need to think about some of the local resources that are in place. I know Harris County, um, I believe it was Commissioner Adrian Garcia took the lead on establishing a small business um, loan program, $10 million um, fund to assist small businesses in Harris County. I think that to me is responsive, effective government 
understanding that there was a disconnect between our small business community uh, aiding and receiving resources from the federal government to put those protections in place and to say, hey, guess what? We may be able to allocate $10 million to support some of our businesses until that federal aid um, is rectified and access to said federal aid um, can be navigated properly. No, absolutely. And I, I actually got an opportunity to, to testify at commissioner's court on that uh, particular proposal mm -hmm. before it was passed. And, you know, one of the things that I saw as a challenge was the requirements around a credit score. Uh, I think it was like a 700. Um, and then you still would have to provide some type of collateral and then a 720 and you would not have to provide collateral. And so I took it upon myself to actually reach out to friends that I know that own small businesses and just get feedback from them in terms of how they felt about some of those requirements. And, you know, basically what I came back with is that there are much better ways um, to determine whether or not a business is profitable, if it's solving its ability to pay back a loan outside of looking at someone's credit score, because there's a number of different things that could be attributed to a credit score uh, not being at a 700 level. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, life happens that could impact you personally, but not impact your business. And so it was just another one of those things that we saw as a barrier. Um, and so we definitely want to make sure that we spoke out against it. But, you know, ultimately to your point, um, it was something that was needed. I was glad to see the response and especially it happened so quickly. Um, and so our commissioners, our commissioners, county judge, um, you know, doing what they felt was best and making sure that we did have some additional relief on top of that federal component. Um, now, we've touched on, you know, the food component, the mask, um, and we're just kind of moving through all the different areas that have been impacted by the coronavirus. One piece uh, we haven't talked about a lot is, you know, what do we think is going to come down the pipe in the coming weeks in the region? Obviously, this week we've gotten a lot of big updates, um, you know, from Governor Abbott's office and then here locally, I think Mayor Turner has another press conference later today. Um, and so it's just a lot of movement, literally day to day, it's shifting. But, you know, what are some of those things that you see coming down the pipe? I think that we've seen um, several movements um, from our mayor and from our county judge. Um, I know that um, apart from the mandatory mask order, um, Judge Lena Hidalgo actually took the lead on establishing a task force, right, for the coronavirus. And I mean, this is not at all uncommon when you're dealing with um, global pandemics and pandemics of any nature of any magnitude there's always a task force of subject matter experts to assist not just with reintegration but with a plan of action to ensure that those who are most impacted have access um, to said resources. Um, she appointed a state representative Armando Wale as the chair of her um, coronavirus task force and what I'm hoping to see um, movement-wise from that task force is real meaningful, not just conversations, but movement around testing centers, right, in communities of color and addressing issues that are directly correlated to how do they actually get to the testing center, right? How are we handling those people who are asymptomatic, those people who test positive for corona but may refuse treatment or are afraid of treatment, and then those who, quite frankly, are just too afraid to get tested, right? There are several iterations of this that I believe need to be addressed. And I, I do um, firmly support, I mean, the judge's position to 
to develop a task force, but I think that we need to make sure that it's intentional, right? And that we're moving aggressively and as swiftly as we can, right? Just as the virus is, right? So we should be able to meet those needs. I mean, regarding the food insecurity piece, like we mentioned earlier, right? I think a part of the conversation that task force is meeting the needs, right? Daily from food, from utility assistance to combating the digital divide, down to testing centers, access to testing centers at a very rapid rate, right? We can't flatten the curve until we have these protections in place and that they're functioning at their maximum potential so that we can actually evaluate the reality of us going back to business and to work. And I mean, th that sense of urgency can't really exist absent of medical expertise and input and data that supports that we're actually flattening the curve. And we can't get there until these task force and other things are up and running smoothly. Yeah, for me, I think two of the things I'm hoping to see more information roll out on locally and nationally is the, the antibody testing as well as uh, contact tracing. Um, mm -hmm. I know there was a national partnership forum, I think between Apple and Google, where they were working on some technology that helped um, trace, you know, once somebody has been impacted by coronavirus, because that's been a, a huge thing that uh, has popped up, but also the antibody testing. Cause I know, I think I told you, it was like a week ago. I personally <laughs> thought I had coronavirus cause my chest was tight and I was like, what is, what am I feeling? But I realized it was just anxiety. And so that was the first time I had actually like experienced that. But said that to say, uh, there's a lot of people that have been asymptomatic um, and people, you know, they just don't know. And uh, as a result, again, we keep stressing the importance of that testing. So hopefully we do see a lot more uh, on that front in the coming weeks. Now, one thing that's been uh, significantly impacted, obviously, is, you know, businesses, people's jobs. Uh, the unemployment rate has spiked to historic levels. Um, yeah. And so what do you think some of the, the long-term effects of that will be? I think that it, it's going to be extremely difficult to reinvigorate our economy, given the state that we're currently in. I think the numbers right now, um, from this morning, is about 26.5 million Americans have applied for unemployment as of today, right? So that's not a number that you just come back from in a month or two, right? Or that when the stay order is lifted, then back to work, industry's booming again. I mean, as I mentioned before, I mean, we know that the small business community is, is, is the backbone of our economy, right? Absent of that, many small businesses, with or without aid, will close their doors, right? And with that reality, they will not be able to you know, support their employees, right? Which leads to them not being able to support their families and several other, you know, just domino effect, just unintended consequences. But it's the reality of what we're dealing with and rushing people back into the workforce isn't really the, the best prescription. And I do intend for this to be a two or three year rehabilitative period, right? Because post corona, if you know if we can even say that at this juncture that it's still going to be a challenge from the local state and federal level to work in synergy to figure out how do we get this train back on the track as a collective yeah and one of the things from an unemployment standpoint that was made very evident is in several of our 
um, states in terms of infrastructure, the systems are so far behind, they have no ability to handle uh, this type of, you know, swell in unemployment. And so a lot of the things where we've invested money, I think as a country and, um, you know, when it comes to going to war and things of that nature, um, you could argue that they could be better allocated to some of these systems, um, or at least there could be more balance because, um, you know, I've, I've seen and heard from different community people, especially in light of what's going on with this, that, you know, the government, they find money for things that they want to find money for. Uh -oh. um, so, but, you know, that may be a conversation for another day. Uh, but what do you think, uh, we've talked about all these different things that are, you know, impacting the community. Um, the different areas. How can someone that wants to help um, those that have been impacted by COVID-19 without putting themselves and their families at risk? I've even had people, you know, mm -hmm. reach out to me. Um, they want to volunteer. Um, and, you know, it's obviously it's, I get it because, you know, I like to volunteer as well. We want to interact <laughs> with people, but you, you have to be safe. Uh, and so what would you kind of suggest to people that are looking to, to get involved and do something positive? I mean, I think, I mean, as, as you mentioned before, we have got to figure out more creative and, and, and meaningful avenues to really support people who are directly impacted by COVID-19 that doesn't require, you know, others putting themselves or their families um, at risk. I get that everyone wants to be at the next food distribution and <laughs> to take their pictures and to, you know, be out there and supporting it. We get it, right? But ultimately, we have, we have got to move with an abundance of caution, right? This is a virus that every day we're learning something new about it, right? And its movement, how it exists, how it impacts people, how it manifests itself internally and externally. And I think that that abundance of caution comes from that, right? We're dealing with something that we don't just have a prescription or a vaccine for, right? That's ever changing. And so with that in mind, I do think that there are a number of ways, right? That you could support existing efforts that doesn't require you to leave the confines of your home. Right? So I think between making a financial contribution, right? To a nonprofit, like we mentioned, the food bank earlier, right? Other nonprofits that are doing things. I know that my firm, we working closely with HISD and a small nonprofit called CompuDoc, right? To address the digital divide and underserved communities. So we're collecting laptops from our friends, wiping them clean, making sure it goes to a household for kids who quite frankly don't have, you know, a laptop or don't have access to a laptop now that they're required to go to school at home, right? Like we didn't think about that barrier, right? Parents who don't have a desktop and or a laptop, whose kids can't get on the internet, who they just don't have those resources. So we're working within, within our silo to do what we can, right? To address some of these issues. So I would say make a financial contribution or a donation of some sort, whether it's clothes or food, right? That doesn't really require you, right? To be out in public, you know, for X amount of hours, but something you can do from the confines of your home. I know that there's another small nonprofit. I am, it, the name is, is it's missing me right now, but you can leave your clothes or canned goods and unperishables out front. They'll come and pick it up. And I know at my firm, we also have a, a community resource guide, right? I get that every day there's a new press conference with new information, right? And it, it's tough, right? It's fatigue. It's a lot, right? For people to consume and to keep it all in their head, right? 
So we've centralized a lot of this information. You can visit us, Facebook, Next Wave Strategies, or on our Instagram, at Next Wave Strategies, and click the link in our bio. We have an active resource guide with a lot of information from Texas Workforce Commission, information, SNAP benefits, small business um, resources, and things of that nature. And I'm most appreciative of those people who are utilizing their platforms just to be a, a hub for information, right? And to keep people informed. And I get that everybody, you know, wants to promote their business and promote them. I mean, it's tough, right? I mean, at this point, the only thing we should be promoting is how to get aid to those people who are most impacted by COVID-19 in our community. And I appreciate you touching on the, the philanthropic elements that people can support. I know for me, even as you were talking, I just think about some of the things I've contributed to. Um, mm -hmm. You know, with the Defender, I was able to contribute to their cause. They're trying to make sure uh, they raise some money because that's one of our locally Black-owned papers that have been impacted uh, as a result of the coronavirus. Um, you know, the young professionals here and in Dallas are doing drives for the community. So I've contributed to both of those. And even Pure Justice, uh, mm -hmm. they were helping to pay uh, people's utility bills and their rent. That's uh, another small local nonprofit. I was able to support them. And so there's a lot of different things that people can be doing. Um, I think to your point about information, make sure that you're sharing good information. Um, I have seen a lot of misinformation um, through, you know, uh, it was a game they used to play telephone and people get this and I'm like, what? Oh. <laughs> hear that. Um, or I've yeah. received the screenshots of the messages talking about the armies coming in and they're about to, and this was like weeks ago that it was going to happen in like 24 hours and get ready. And yeah. so no. we definitely want you guys to make sure you're getting good information uh, from good sources uh, and sharing that accordingly. Uh, in a second, we're going to jump into some questions. So if you do have any, please, uh, if you're on the Zoom, drop those in the chat. Or if you're on the Facebook Live, drop those in there so we can get to those. Um, but also, I've seen people in the, um, the fitness and health industry that have been able to help people as it relates to home workouts. Uh, you know, I've been trying to work out every day. Um, you know, there's different things. I didn't realize how in shape you could stay at the house. I'm, I'm somebody who's used to going to the gym and we can't do that because we're social distancing. Uh, and even from a mental health perspective, some of these virtual gatherings, uh, happy hours, et cetera, people are, are needing that um, just because, you know, typically they're accustomed to interacting and they're not able to do so. And so I think all of those outlets are ways that you can be helpful uh, and do so responsibly mm -hmm. without having to go out and interact with people. And I also um, think, Ray, um, to touch a little bit more on um, trusted information um, sources, I think, um, to take it a step further, I think we've got to be very intentional about that. I don't think we can say just, you know, get out there and get good information, right? People need to know what are those trusted platforms to get that information from. As it pertains to federal government resources, you go to coronavirus.gov. It has up-to-date information about small business resources, testing centers, COVID-19 isolation and quarantine tips that you have. HarrisCountyTX.gov. There's a COVID drop-down box there that talks a little more about that small business loan initiative. Um, County Judge Lena Hidalgo's mask order, as well as access to uh, food distribution centers and utility assistance programs all in one, all in one place. 
as it pertains to the city, you go to HoustonTX.gov and there's information about city resources and entities and things of that nature and what they'll be doing. And I know we hadn't touched uh, much on this piece, but we did have an in-depth conversation about the rise of domestic violence and, and child abuse cases and things of that nature that's happening as a, a result. And we did, I think, touch earlier on unintended consequences of COVID-19 and some of the challenges, the realities, right, of what we're experiencing and how to combat that in a meaningful and solution-oriented way. I was, I'm excited to see Mayor Sylvester Turner take the lead on having a conversation or a press conference yesterday, per se, with the Houston Area Women's Center, right, and in partnership with other domestic violence um, entities and outlets, right, those resources are just as pertinent and important as well. So I mentioned earlier, we have a resource guide with all those information, with all the information to hotlines, to shelters, and things of that nature. We have to have a comprehensive thoughtful approach to really address this thing from all fronts. No, all great points. Now, you know, I couldn't let us have this conversation today without asking you about the census. I don't know what you thought I was going to ask, but about the census, it is extremely critical uh, since the 2020. I have on my, you can't see it, my, my Make Black Count shirt. Uh, right. We're trying to make sure that we're getting an accurate count in communities of color. But uh, hopefully, have you done your census? And, and if so, why why is it important to you, Ms. Dennis? Um, I completed my census on the first day of the census. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's been done for some time now. Um, I think it's important to all of us as a collective. I think... I mean, not to belabor the point, we understand the importance of the census and the count and as it pertains to federal resources and the makeup of our district, right? And what will happen with our district lines and redistricting and how the census directly impacts um, processes such as that. And so I know that the deadline has been extended to August the 31st. I know we've been putting out some information about that. I see Damian Jones down there like, really? So <laughs> hopefully he's done his census. <laughs> But in, in reality, um, we have got to do our best, right, to ensure that our community is counted, right, because it is extremely important, and I don't want to underscore the importance of the census at all. I get that people are like, all right, we get it, fill out your census. Yeah, it's, it's more important to get on people's nerves and get it done, right, than to not have it done and have it undercount, right, that could severely um, um, yield some, some very, you know, unintended consequences. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the, the deadline keeps changing. I think they even pushed it back again, potentially to October. Um, and the the concern is now that, it, you know, it's getting more into the election um, and trying to make sure that people are participating in both. And to date, the national self-response rate uh, as of, what's today? Lose track of the day. As of Tuesday, I think it was trending. <laughs> Today's around. Thursday. Today is Thursday, April the 23rd. Yeah, I had to think about it. Uh, but it was trending around 51% nationally, and the state of Texas was around 46.5%, and, and it was actually lower for the county as well as for the city of Houston. And one of the other things that people may not realize is that the state of Texas, our leadership, in, oper, opted not to fund getting an accurate count. You had states like California that put tens of millions of dollars uh, towards that effort, and our elected officials at the state level opted to put no money towards that. Uh, and so it's something that's tied to literally hundreds of billions of dollars coming back to our community. Please do not wait 
until August or until October, whenever they ultimately push it all the way back to. Don't wait. Just do it now. Go to my2020census.gov. It takes literally five to ten minutes. Uh, answer those questions and make sure your family's counted so we can get those resources and in the future be able to better respond to things like this current pandemic that we're experiencing because we will know how many people we need to account for. Uh, and right. it's really that simple. Um, and I know that some, and Ray, I want to know, I want to just clarify that we did have some elected officials who represent our communities that were really, that were really advocating, right, for the county and that are, are consistently and have been consistently on the front lines. I've received several emails from our city council members, our state legislators, and from our congressional leaders encouraging um, the count in our community. And so we don't want to paint everyone with a broad brush, but we do know that there are some players that are acting in concert to ensure that the count doesn't happen. Yes, and as a nonpartisan organization, I will not be doing a roll call of those individuals involved, but I do encourage you to research those things uh, and determine who you need to hold accountable for those actions. Um, now, we did have a question come into the queue. What happens if we go back to work and there's an asymptomatic employee that causes an outbreak or death? Uh, who's responsible? That is a very loaded question. Um, <laughs> do you want to take a stab at that, Ms. Dennis? I think that, I mean, as we mentioned before, we are hoping um, that we do not, you know, phase people back into the workforce before we've done everything within our power to ensure that access to testing is a real thing and that everyone in their respective community has access to testing and that we're encouraging folks who are asymptomatic and who believe that they're quote unquote immune from the virus to get tested. Right. We can't flatten the curve if we aren't providing people with the tools and access to resources to actually get tested within their respective communities. And so I think that is like, like we mentioned earlier, a broader conversation around what many of these task force will be tasked with doing, right? Ensuring that there is aggressive daily approach to ensuring that the testing centers are accessible for everyone, right? So I don't, I don't think that there's this reality where we just thrust people back into the workforce. As we mentioned, Governor Kemp in, in Georgia, Governor DeSantis in Florida, even our own Governor Abbott, who's introducing this thing in phases, right? It's, it's premature, it's dangerous. And I think we have to do everything we can within our power as individuals to make sure that we equip with the most accurate information to make informed decisions. But I, I know for sure that integrating back into the workforce so soon, as we mentioned before, absent of medical expertise and data to support that we've actually flattened the curve. You know, you don't just move right off of a whim because we want to stimulate the economy again. And quite frankly, opening up businesses tomorrow or next week will not ensure that our economy will be stimulated in a real way. Yeah, and you know, there have been some very irresponsible comments in terms of, you know, there are more important things than living. Um, that actually came from a state official. Again, you can look that up. Yeah, Lieutenant Governor. Yeah, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick mentioned that um, in his comments. And again, just just gross misuse of a platform, and it's costing people their lives. And we have got to be trusted community messengers and get the proper information out right from our elected officials who are giving us daily updates from the ground. I think that that's a real thing and that everyone should be using their platforms to promote the most accurate information um, to date. Yeah, because I mean, I'm getting 
phone calls, uh, for example, even from like my brother, he's not somebody who's typically engaged in politics, but even he was asking me about those comments. Um, and so I just think that speaks to just the overall reach and mm -hmm. again, the irresponsible nature of what he was saying. And it's not the first time he said something to that degree. Um, and so ultimately, I think unless to your point, we have the testing in place, the antibody testing, uh, as well as the contact tracing, we have to be very careful and err on the side of caution as it relates mm -hmm. to people's lives. Um, again, we understand that it's a very difficult um, decision to make, but we would want to err on the side of that. There was also a question about how accurate are the tests. I have not seen a lot of issue with uh, accuracy. However, I know there is like a certain window where um, you could be tested and show up negative, but then a few days later, you could potentially um, show up positive. And so I don't remember what was the discrepancy in that situation, because I have seen that scenario maybe like a handful of times. Um, there was also a question about, do all the pop-up locations have the same test as the hospitals or original test sites? Yeah. Um, and from what I've seen, the tests have been getting progressively better. Um, I know the initial one, there was, I think, a waiting period. Somebody told me it took 11 days. Uh, somebody else, it was two weeks. Um, mm -hmm. I think the standard, the last that I read was 35 days, they'll be contacted by an 800 number. If they don't respond to that 800 number, then they'll receive their results um, online. So I think that there's, you know, there's several phases of it. And across the board, I mean, between the drive ups and the actual going to the hospital to get tested, I mean, I think that there was a lot of misinformation around who could get tested, you know, originally, but now it's broad meaning whether you're demonstrating whether you're exhibiting symptoms or not right you'll be able to go up and get tested and i think that that's important right as we mentioned before there's a swath of individuals who are asymptomatic and so i think that's advantageous for everyone right to know their status right and to know next steps and to be able to inform the next person right and so i think that right now we have to come together as a community to make sure that we are weeding out this misinformation and keeping everything centralized. I've seen lots of great um, content from the Black Chamber, from the Urban League, from some of our elected officials, from our city council members, our state legislators, our congressional leaders across the board. And for the most part, the information has been congruent. And, and that, that congruency to me is, is meaningful and helpful, especially in an era where they're receiving information from several different mediums and to make sure that we're one band, one sound as it pertains to testing, food distribution, resources for businesses and individuals, so. No, absolutely. And we, we getting a lot of questions now. We don't have time to address all of them, but one of them uh, I think is very, very critical. And we're gonna do more of these. So if there are other topics you want us to, to cover, uh, definitely let us know. But one is about what will voting look like going forward? And that's also in combination with should the push towards mail-in voting be a main goal at this point? I know that's been a, a huge topic uh, with the coming national elections. Mm -hmm. I think that there are lots of conversations about the future of, of elections, right, across this country, right, especially given the fact here in Harris County we're in the midst of a runoff. You know, it'll be taken out, that'll be taking place in, in July from our primary elections, and then we have our general election in November. I know that Diane Troutman, 
um, released some information. You can find that information on her platforms, um, Diane Trotman, or you can go directly to Next Wave Strategies. We just share that mail-in ballot um, process. And then there's looming conversations about next steps and what that will what that will take to actually put in place. I don't think that it's an overnight thing, but it's certainly something that everyone is considering and having meaningful conversations um, about from the administrative level up to elected officials, up to our uh, to party leadership on both sides as to what will the future of elections look like um, given what's going on now. No, and that, that also feeds into another question about, you know, what does the normal, the new normal look like for our community. Um, and I think the interesting thing is that nobody knows there's a, an opportunity for us to to innovate and create uh, a lot of what that's going to look like. We actually had that conversation uh, this past weekend with uh, organizations like Street Code and Black Girls Code and Nesby um, talking about the opportunity to create uh, and the necessity uh, in a time like this when you're talking about a pandemic um and even you know what do we want to see from young professionals in houston in regards to political engagement post covid 19. Um, <laughs> what what are your thoughts on that and then i'll, I'll jump in there as well miss dennis i think um i think post post covid i mean there's a there's a lot of space right for us to revisit a lot of our daily comings and goings and normal practices across the spectrum from business to education to family life, right? I think we've learned an inordinate amount about working from home, homeschooling our children, right? Having access to XYZ resources. And I think that business leaders and CEOs and executives have learned a little bit more about their workforce, right? And what's attainable and not attainable. What were we wasting money on that we could probably save money on now? And also employees who are realizing like, maybe I am better suited working from home, right? Versus going into an office every day. I mean, just, I think, and I, and I'm, I guess I'm happy that this has prompted meaningful discourse about what could this next phase post COVID look like? What systems should be put in place? What have we learned about our government bureaucracies? right as it pertains to the disconnect between resources and average everyday citizens and people who didn't even know which platforms to go to to access information from their local representatives and so there are lots of meaningful conversations and hopefully happenings and movements that'll take place post corona and should there be another outbreak we should have a more comprehensive intentional approach that's solution oriented based upon what we've experienced now to help us navigate um, moving forward. So I'm looking forward to seeing um, lessons learned and how will we have that practical application um, component moving forward. No, absolutely. Um, I think the, the easy answer for me is, of course, I would want to see young people uh, more involved across the board. Obviously, you have people like yourself and uh, Erica that have, you know, taken the, the local political uh, sphere by storm with the, with the oh, way, <laughs> and you guys are doing some amazing work in that space. Uh, you have people that can, you know, run for public office. We see uh, actually Tiffany Thomas, Councilwoman Tiffany Thomas, excuse me, the Honorable, uh, who Come is on, Honorable. <laughs> president of the Houston Area Urban League Young Professionals. Uh, and so there's a lot of different avenues for young people to get involved, to get engaged. 
Uh, I want people to be much more engaged as a result because, again, we've seen all these different disparities bubble to the top that we already knew. They've just become more prevalent uh, and more easy to spot as a result of everything we're going through with the virus. Mm -hmm. um, I definitely want to thank everybody for tuning in today. Uh, we want to thank those who are on the front lines, our essential personnel, our leadership uh, that are out there putting themselves at risk to make sure that we are safe, we are fed, and we talk about the grocery stores, uh, and even those that are still working in transit. Uh, definitely praying for those that have lost loved ones as a result of COVID-19 and a swift recovery for those that may be experiencing uh, that disease and anything else. And I definitely want to thank Ms. Dennis from Next Wave. Yeah and the way for joining the Urban League today. <laughs> Is there anything else you would want to uh, leave the people with as we close out? Um, I just want to thank the Urban League for fostering um, this platform to have meaningful dialogue, you know, about things that directly impact our community. Um, I look forward to more of these conversations as we really get to the root of how to address many of the issues that have been plaguing our community prior to. We know that COVID-19 has only amplified the inequalities that have existed in communities of color for decades now. And so this is a really good time and a meaningful way to really start having those conversations of not just putting a Band-Aid over a bullet wound, but actually addressing some of the deep-seated issues that we have been grappling with for ages now. And so again, I'm excited and happy that you all chose me to join you all in this dialogue in our, in our firm, Next Wave Strategic Consulting Group. As we mentioned before, um, please visit us at Next Wave Strategies on our Facebook platform or at Next Wave Strategies on Instagram to access that community resource guide. It has comprehensive information across the board um, that I think will be useful to those individuals who are impacted by COVID-19. Absolutely. Again, my name is Ray Shackleford. Uh, I want you guys to follow up with the Urban League at www.haul.org. We're on all social media platforms. And again, thank Ms. Dennis and everyone for tuning in today. Have a great remainder of your day. Make sure you have a mask and stay safe. To learn more about how the Houston Area Urban League is impacting the community and ways you can get involved, visit us online at haul.org. Follow us on Twitter at HOU Urban League and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play or whichever podcasting platform you enjoy. Thanks for listening to Empower, presented by the Houston Area Urban League.